Let's, let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word that we just heard um, Carol read aloud. Lord, thank you for uh, revealing your heart to us, helping us know uh, who you are and uh, what you call us to. And so we just pray now in this time that you would help us uh, understand these things that we read and apply them to our lives. Often in your word we'll read uh, the line, He who has ears to hear, let them hear. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear. Give us open ears and hearts. Um, Lord, we invite you to come and have your way here this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, welcome to FBC. We are so glad that you are here. If I haven't uh, had a chance to meet you, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and just so glad to be with you as we continue preaching through the Gospel of John. Pastor Ian brought the message last week. It was great to, to hear uh, him bring the word. And I'm glad, though, to be, to be back with you and want to invite you to turn to John 13. If you haven't already, that's where we're going to be. Uh, again, uh, Carol just read it out loud for us, starting in uh, verse 31. In his recent book, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines for Everyday Life, pastor and author Paul David Tripp wrote this. Each of us is hardwired by God for glory. We are glory-oriented human beings. We are attracted to glorious things, whether it's an exciting drama, an enthralling piece of music, or the best meal ever. We are glory-oriented human beings. We're attracted to and drawn to glory. I got a glimpse of this on Wednesday night when I took our daughter Zoe to her first ever professional basketball game. We went to see the Sacramento Kings play the Milwaukee Bucks Wednesday night in Sacramento. And I remember when I was a kid going to Kings games with my parents, and so I was just overjoyed to be able to take Zoe, who's almost five, to her first Kings game. Uh, The basketball game itself was somewhat interesting to her, uh, but the whole spectacle of the evening had her hooked. She was Loving it. I mean, she went from seeing little bits and pieces of it on TV to going in person for the first time. And if you've ever been, imagine it through the eyes of a child. Massive, larger-than-life stadium. Thousands of people filing in and moving about. Lights and music, and there were even flamethrowers during the, you know, game introductions, and the halftime show, and the stadium food, the junk food. There, there wasn't a vegetable in sight, people, okay? She was just all about it. The cheering crowd in the fourth quarter as the game was actually close and engaging. I wondered going into this if she'd want to leave early, because I was like, you know, I don't know if the game itself will hold her attention throughout, and so it's going to be late and past her bedtime, and so maybe she's going to want to leave early. And so kind of in the third quarter, you know, after the halftime show, we would already gotten most of our snacks and stuff, I was like, hey, are you doing okay? Do you want, you want to stay to the end? Like, are you thinking you might want to go? Or, and she said, and I quote, Dad, I want to stay until everybody leaves. <laughs> in other words, we are going to shut this place down, Dad. We're going to be the last people out of here, Okay. And at that point, I was like, okay, she's hooked. She's in. Kings fan for life. She couldn't get enough because she was drawn to this whole spectacle saying, this is a really big deal and fun 
and exciting. And realize, though, that that setting in the heart of a child um, is not only something that children experience, but even as adults, right, we're drawn to glory. Paul Tripp continues in his book. He says, God built this glory orientation into us so that it would drive us to him. Because we're glory-oriented, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory. NBA basketball might not do much for you, but you are hardwired to pursue and behold glory. We're all drawn to things that are big and beautiful and majestic and excellent and weighty and praiseworthy. We're wired to kind of stand in front of things and say, whoa. And so notice again that Jesus here in John chapter 13 with his disciples is speaking about glory. Look at verse 31 again. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Right? Count the number of times you read the word glory or glorify in there. It's repeated theme. He's talking about glory. Now notice the setting of all of this. Verse 31 starts with when he was gone. Not meaning Jesus being gone, but Judas had just gone. Judas had just left, as Pastor Ian preached about last week. Judas went to betray Jesus, leading to the arrest of Jesus. And so Jesus is now left uh, with his remaining disciples. And really the next few chapters in the book of John that we're going to read about are known as the farewell discourse, where it's uh, these final words and teaching from Jesus uh, to his disciples before he goes to his death. And he starts here by talking about glory. Again, verse 31, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Now, a few questions come up then with all of this. First, uh, what does it mean to be glorified? According to Scripture, when we speak of glory, it speaks of, of weightiness, or literally the Hebrew word, something that's heavy or significant. Something is glorious if it is shown to be, made to be uh, majestic and of significance, praiseworthy, full of honor and splendor. In layman's terms, something is glorified if it's shown to be a really big deal. Okay, well, who then is glorified or what is glorified? Verse 31, Jesus says what? Now the Son of Man is glorified. That's Jesus referring to himself. It's actually a title from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man was one that people were waiting for who would be one who would come and be given dominion and glory and honor and all people would come before the Son of Man to serve him and his kingdom. Jesus is saying, that's me. He's taking that title and applying it to himself. Now the Son of Man is glorified, but also the text tells us that God the Father is glorified. You see that? We've actually seen this theme throughout the Gospel of John, the glory of God the Father. Remember back in chapter 12, if you were with us then in verse 27, Jesus speaking, he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, speaking of the cross. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it again. And so Jesus, in chapter 12 there, is looking ahead to the cross. And he prays, Father, glorify your name. Right? And his life desiring that the Father would receive glory. And now here in chapter 13, it tells us again, yes, that the Son of Man is about to be glorified. But God the Father is glorified in his Son as well. We see this love and mutual honor shared between the Father and the Son. So you say, okay, okay, I'm tracking Glor- what it means to be glorified, and the Father and the Son are going to be glorified. But the next question, well, when and, and how, in what way will they be glorified? Well, verse 31 says what? Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. With, with Judas leaving to betray Jesus and the events leading to the cross accelerating, It's this hour as Jesus goes to his death that he is glorified. Now the Son of Man, he says. And so we're reminded that God's glory is revealed, shown in the cross. We can look to the scriptures and see clearly that God's glory is seen in his power in creation that he made and sustains all things. We can look to Scripture and see that God's glory is shown in His infinite perfection. He's holy and almighty. He is unchanging and perfect in every way. God's glory is seen in His justice. He is the ruler and judge of all the earth who will deal with sin and evil, and He judges justly. God's glory is seen in that He's all-sufficient, without need, completely free. So God's glory is seen in countless ways we could celebrate and sing about and describe, but never more so than in the cross. It's in the cross of Christ that we see the perfect and willing obedience of the Son to the will of the Father. It's in the cross that we see Jesus perfectly reveal the heart of the Father. This is what God is like. God is a God of self-giving love, willing to die for those whom he loves. So friends, this is why we sing about the cross. This is why we come back to the cross and speak of the cross and preach about the cross week after week. This is why we sing songs like we did earlier today. Look and see. Is that a great song? Look and see our God. Look, behold, look at the power of the cross. Look at what God has done. Our hearts need that, to see God clearly. And so I want you to see this morning that this isn't just some abstract lesson in theology, right? And that you can go to a dinner party and explain glory, and people will be like, wow, that's cool. Uh, there's, there's real life application here. Speaking of glory, we, like we talked about earlier, are glory-oriented beings. Our hearts are drawn to captured by glory. This is why, think about it, we're drawn to beautiful people and beautiful things. This is why we're drawn to the Grand Canyon and the mountains and the ocean. This is why we're drawn to the spectacle of a concert or an NBA basketball game. This is why we look up to the stars at night in wonder and celebrate powerful stories beautifully displayed in movies And books, our hearts are moved and captured by glory. Again, something within us is wired to stand before glory and say, 
the problem is that sometimes, rather than standing for the glory of God and beholding Him, we settle for lesser glories, don't we? And we live for our own glory. We look in the mirror a little too much, or we settle for the glory of created things. We take good things that our Father has given us, people and experiences and nature and comforts, and we make them ultimate things. And we stop with the created things. Rather than saying, wow, this ocean is amazing, this Grand Canyon is amazing, this cheeseburger is amazing, and if these things are amazing, then how much greater is the one who made them? If the gift is amazing, how much greater is the giver of the gift? Instead of letting those experiences roll up into praise and worship, we sometimes stop with the experience itself. Right? And this is really what, what every non-Christian, non-believer does as well. Right? Because if there is no God and there is no giver of the gift, then we just stop with enjoying the gift itself, which has joy and blessing in it, but it stops short of what it was fully intended to do. Think, think of the Grand Canyon. I've shared this before. I went there a few years ago on a road trip with a friend. Uh, it was my first time to the Grand Canyon, and we parked at one of the lookout spots, but it wasn't like right along the edge. You had to, like, you were in a parking lot and had to walk a little bit of the ways out in order to, to see it and, and look out. Um, and, and I thought, as we did that, like, wouldn't it be weird if we went to the Grand Canyon and parked, um, but then stayed in the car? And, you know, like maybe I left my friend, yeah, you go, you go out there, look at the Grand Canyon, I'm going to stay here and, and kind of look in the mirror and make sure my hair is right. And maybe scroll social media, you know, go on Instagram a little bit and just kind of look up some recipes on Pinterest or just be on my phone here a little bit. Wouldn't that be absurd to go to the Grand Canyon and have glory waiting right in front of you? You're like, no, I'm I'm Okay. It would make no sense, right? And yet sometimes that's what we do when we settle for lesser glories. Instead of beholding God and all his perfection and worshiping him, we just look at ourselves or settle with created things rather than worshiping the creator. And this, friends, hear me, this is why, this is why worship is so important. This is why corporate worship, what we're doing here this morning in this room, it's so important, so necessary for our hearts. Because when we come together each week and we sing about God and we celebrate what he's done and we, we hear his word, each week it's an opportunity to look at God and say, whoa, this God is so good and so great and so worthy. Right? We sing about him and proclaim his goodness and we sit before him when we do that. Over time it shapes us. Our hearts need that. Our hearts are, are wired for worship. So realize, when you miss church, when you miss church, you're missing more than just an informational lecture about the Bible. Right? You're missing this opportunity to sit before God in worship. And that changes us. So Jesus speaks of his coming glory, and he goes on. You saw verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's preparing them for his departure. And then verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love 
one another. Again, with Judas' departure that night, we know the events leading to the cross are accelerating. And Jesus then speaks affectionately to his disciples. My children, prepares them for his departure. I won't be with you much longer. And then he he leaves some final instructions, which would be common for a rabbi, a teacher, a leader to do as they know that their time is drawing near. And here's his command, his instruction. Here's what I want you to be about, disciples. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love one another. Now, you may wonder, is that really a new command? Pretty sure the Old Testament said some things about love, right? God in the Old Testament called us to to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength. God's word in the Old Testament was full of commands to love our neighbors. And so it's not as if, you know, God wants to love us and the disciples are like, no way, that's brand new information. Um, It, of course, would be known. But the new part about it, then we can surmise, would be the model behind it, the, the piece that Jesus adds to it, love one another as I have loved you. So it's the teaching of Jesus and the model of Jesus that deepens and expands and fills out this command. Uh, Scholar D.A. Carson puts it this way, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. If that's the command of Jesus and the call of Jesus for each of us, a few questions then come with that. Love one another as I have loved you. Well, the first question would be then, okay, well, how has Jesus loved us? In a number of ways. First, uh, the simple fact that he came to us. He drew near to us. Right? The doctrine of the incarnation, God in the flesh. God coming down, walking among us. He came to serve. He washed his disciples' feet. He came to teach and heal. And ultimately, he came to lay down his life on the cross. It is a sacrifice for you and for me. We know he's about to go to the cross to bear our sin. And he clearly will say in John chapter 15, there's no greater love than laying down your life for your friends. And so if you're a Christian, do you realize the way Jesus has loved you? Do you have a sense of the great lengths that Jesus went to love you? I'm not always convinced that we, we understand the weight of it, the cost, the length Jesus went to save us, our sin that made it necessary, that we, we were lost. I mean, isn't that what we just sang in one of our other songs? This is a, our testimony as Christians. I was lost, and Jesus, you found me. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us you were dead in your sin. We were guilty. We were rebels. We were proud. We were running the opposite direction from God. Though we were deserving of separation from God, judgment forever, Jesus came. He loved us and he died for us and he took all the the wrath and punishment and consequences of sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven and healed and freed. And sometimes we we think about it so casually, don't we? 
with lukewarm devotion. Like, I mean, I wasn't really lost. I mean, I was just out for a, a walk. You know, like, I would have found my way back eventually, just needed some more time. I wasn't lost. But I was like, no, you were lost. You were a lost sheep, wandering in danger. You were, not on the, you were dead. You were dead in your sin, every one of us. Jesus came and he, he saved us. And he died for us. And then he made us alive as we're united to him through faith and the power of his resurrection. Love as I have loved you. Jesus loves you. He says, that's how I want you to love one another then, right? Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now realize, yes, we're to love the world, right? As Christians, we're to love all people. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, and then through the parable of the Good Samaritan, it says, and your neighbor is uh, everybody, even your enemies. But there's to be this special commitment and love shown within the church, you see? Love one another, he says, talking to his disciples, I want my disciples, my followers, to show this peculiar, this above and beyond love for their brothers and sisters. Now, I often share this at at weddings uh, with premarital couples or doing the ceremony. We'll talk about love and the fact that it's not just a feeling, right? Sometimes we think about love and we're like, it's, that's when, you know, we get the warm fuzzies and our, our hearts are, you know, overflowing and we have all these feelings of love towards our spouse or the one that we're engaged to. And, uh, but the reality is that love, we know, is, is more than just a feeling, right? We can have feelings of love, but love is a, an action. It, it's an action to uh, bless another, work for the good of another person, even if the feelings of love might come and go, right? And in marriage, if you've been married um, any length of time beyond the honeymoon, you probably know, right, that sometimes the feeling of love can fluctuate. There are challenges in marriage and difficult seasons. And uh, I know, you know, at one point you thought your spouse was perfect and can do no wrong, but then you get married and you realize that, uh, you know, they can. And um, it's, it's challenging. And so we need to commit not just to the feeling of love, because we can't really control that, but to the action of love. I'm here. I'm for you in good and bad. And I think we need, we need a similar approach in the church. Right? That loving one another, as Jesus told us to, is not just about when we feel loving towards one another, but even when we don't, even when people are difficult to love, even when people are challenging to us, we're still called to love them. Right? In Christ, we're a family. In Christ, we're brothers and sisters. And Jesus said, here's what I want my disciples to be about. Love one another. So realize in the Orthodoxy without love will not do. Precision in doctrine without love will not do. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Remember that passage that's read at weddings, love is patient and kind. Before that, um, he says, you know, if I, if I speak in tongues or have the gift of prophecy or have all knowledge or have uh, given everything I have for the poor or great faith, but I don't have love? He says, I'm nothing. Thank you, I'm nothing. 
which, which to me is a simple, it's a wild verse, a wild concept, because I'm, I'm an achiever. I'm like, you know, driven success and achievement and, you know, like people, you know, um, often um, I see things in that way, right? Who's successful and um, has a claim or praise or whatever. But this verse is essentially saying, you could be the smartest guy in the room. You could be the most accomplished gal in the room. The most gifted person in the room. And if you don't love other people, God doesn't care. Without love, you're nothing. This is how we are to be known. So I want you to think about your relationships within the church. These kind of, you know, quirky people you're sitting all around right now. Are you loving each other? Are we loving each other? How Jesus has loved us with a sacrificial love. The committed love. First, realize Jesus drew near to us, right? The doctrine of the incarnation. God himself come to us to walk among us. Jesus came close. He didn't stay comfortably far away. He jumped in to the mess, really. And so the first step then in our love, uh, in our love likewise, needs to be proximity, right? Do we invest time in relationships? Do we spend time with one another? Right? Are, we, are, we, are we in a small group? Do we show up on Sunday to, to fellowship with people who, again, are, are different from us and maybe not easy to love? Or would we categorize you know, church and church people as commitments that are uh, kind of fringe? Do we show up? And, you know, we might not see the impact or the fruit right away of, of not showing up. In other words, if we drift, you know, from church or church participation, it might not seem like a big deal at the time. We might not see the impact of it. And conversely, we might not see the, the power of, or the fruit of commitment to a local body, to a community over the long haul. But over time, it will show itself. Over time, it will bear fruit. And I think just yesterday, there was a, many of you were there, a memorial service for uh, Ron Phillips, a dear brother, um, and it was so, it was it was powerful being there and, and celebrating his life and remembering him and and there were so many stories shared. Um, some were kind of scandalous. Court, I'm gonna talk to you later. Um, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but really, it was meaningful to hear uh, how this man who loved Jesus and loved his church family touched so many lives. And so many of you, and I just was able to sit back and just listen, and, and I was just struck by uh, the impact that a life and a family has over, not just like days or weeks, but, but decades. And you see how many people were touched, and you see how, um, how many people came to celebrate and share these stories and love this brother, and it just made me think, like, I, I want a, a funeral like that. You know, I, I want to pour my life into a community of people that hopefully when I die, they would show up and share. Here's the, the stories, the experiences that we had with Matt. But, but realize that if Ron and Janae and their dear family had not plugged in and had not invested and had not connected, I don't know how many of those stories right, would be there over the years. And yet over the years, they did. And so over the years, there was this beautiful tapestry woven in, in so many of our lives. But we don't know, again, we don't always see it day in and day out. But at a, at a wedding or at a funeral, you get this glimpse right, of what community looks like over the long haul. 
And so I pray that we would, we would show up for one another. And even if we don't see the impact of that next week, over the years and decades, uh, I believe we will. And then if we're in proximity with one another, in relationship, uh, are, are we willing to seek the good of our brothers and sisters? Right? Not just, you know, our own good and our own needs, but how are we looking at those around us and saying, how can I love and serve you? Right? I, I don't want to be just a consumer and be about me, but, but what, do you, what do you need? How can I contribute? How can I be a blessing to others? Right? That's what Jesus did. He came and then he died. He laid down his life for our good. And so we likewise need to look to how we can die and lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters. Think about that. Being here is about more than just you. Sometimes I hear people like, yeah, I don't really go to church because like, I just connect better with God you know, in the mountains. Or you know, I, I get more out of church if I you know, like, listen in later at the beach or something. And I always think when people say that, um, well, I don't say this, but I, oh, sometimes. But maybe, you know, maybe church isn't just about you. You know, maybe, like, good, okay, but maybe church and showing up to worship isn't just about you getting filled and filling your tank. Maybe that's part of it, but maybe there's, there's a call to be here and be a blessing to other people. So maybe uh, you coming to church that day isn't about your tank being filled necessarily, but it's about you being a blessing to someone around you, giving a hug, saying a prayer, encouraging someone, right? Maybe it's not just about you. Jesus says, love one another. Look out at those around you. Now, hear me. Loving like Jesus means drawing near to others, looking to the needs of others. Uh, but we should be clear that this love is not uh, just, you know, squishy or, or unconcerned with truth. You know, orthodoxy without love won't do. But also, just a desire to love without orthodoxy won't do either. Right? Love doesn't mean, hey, just be nice and it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you do. Never confront anybody, just, you know coffee and warm hugs, and that's all we're about. There's more, right? First Corinthians 13 says, love is patient and kind and not proud and does not boast. It's not rude. And also, it goes on to say that love rejoices with the truth. Love is about the truth. And love always protects. Sometimes love has teeth. Hebrews 3 puts it this way. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you realize that sin and the enemy wants to deceive you? And that means that there will be times where you think that nothing is wrong, but things are actually quite wrong. And you can't see it. And so you need people who love you to come alongside you and encourage you and confront you in love and correct you and point you to the truth. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean you just go around slapping people in the name of Jesus, okay, and calling it love. We have to be wise and discerning. We don't have that uh, privilege, I would say, with, with everybody. There are some people that have that right to speak into our lives. So who are those people? That's a question. Um, but I can tell you that some of the most transformative uh, moments in my life are when people loved me enough to confront me. When they loved me enough to say, Matt, you are being an idiot right now, and we need to talk to you about it. 
Seriously, uh, trusted leaders in college said, Matt, we, see, we need to talk to you. We see the pride in your heart. We see it coming out in these ways, and we just wanted to talk to you about it. Could you help us understand what's going on, what's beneath that? Could you tell us more? Right, sometimes confrontation is not just, uh, sometimes it leads with a question. Hey, help me make sense of this. Here's what I'm seeing. Help me understand. When we love one another enough, we'll do that. So hear me, sometimes people need to be gently comforted in love with just a big bear hug, right? And just great patience and grace and, hey, we'll get to all the details later, but just let me hug you right now. And sometimes people need to be firmly confronted in love. And we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to help us know which situation is which. Now, let me say, I do, as, as a pastor, I have the privilege of seeing some really beautiful things in the life of the church. Um, being a pastor is not always necessarily easy, and there are some hard parts of church life that come into play, but we really have the, the privilege of seeing uh, and hearing so many beautiful stories that maybe just, you know, your average churchgoer doesn't get to hear, uh, but it's, it's powerful seeing the things I get to see, seeing you love one another, seeing all the people that, that volunteer and commit time to making this community happen, thinking of our, our, our kids' volunteers and teachers who, who serve kids and teach kids the gospel so that, you know, parents can come in here and, and, and be a part of the worship service, who want to raise up the next generation in the faith, thinking of our, our youth leaders that, that volunteer their time with, with our young people. Think of our brother Charlie, who uh, runs like basically an informal taxi service, sometimes getting people to and from church, who uh, some of our dear sisters who have a difficulty getting here and back Charlie drives them, and others of you I know help in transporting other people to church, going out of your way to love them. I've seen so many of you show up uh, when someone moves or, or moves to town or uh, has a baby or a surgery or a death or a health crisis. I've seen the way you bring food and prayer and, and transportation and help in practical ways and financial help and generous uh, financial support in different ways. I think of our brothers, Nikki and Rose, they're teaching in the kids' ministry right now, and just this past uh, week or two, there was a young man from the Philippines working on a boat, docked here in town, um, and hadn't been able to worship in months, and he walked an hour and a half to church here one morning to worship with us, and, which in itself is a really beautiful picture. Uh, but then while he was here, we got him connected with some other members of the church, um, also from the Philippines. So we figured, how can we uh, love this brother who's far from home and surround him with love and the body of Christ? And so I talked to Nikki and Rose and some other people in the church, met them and helped as well. And they like spent like a whole day or two with like tours of San Francisco, right? Like going, taking, showing them the city, showing them around town, connecting them with other people. I think that he came to the men's breakfast and with another ship made of his. And I, when I mentioned this to Nikki and Rose, I was like, hey, like, you know, could you reach out to him and maybe like have, buy him a cup of coffee or something? You know, like spend an hour. And they're like, we'll take two days with him. I was like, wow, didn't expect that. Well done. It was, it was such a cool picture to say, hey, here's this brother far from home, lonely probably, and we could surround him with the love of the body of Christ. It's so beautiful. So I've seen the ways you live this out. I just want to encourage you to continue that. Realize Jesus says, verse 35, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
here's how people are going to know if you're walking with Jesus or not. Do you love people? Do you love your brothers and sisters? That's how they're going to know. It's not going to be your social media post with your little cup of coffee and your Bible on Instagram. Look at my devotion. It's not how people are going to know. It's not going to be your bumper sticker Whatever, I don't know, signs you wave on the street if you wave signs. I don't know. That's not how people are going to know. Jesus says, this is how everyone's going to know if you love one another. May that be our reputation. Almost two centuries later, early church father Tertullian, um, talking about some of the ways the non-Christian world, the pagan world, looked at Christians and the character of Christian gatherings. And he said this, look, they say, how they love one another, and how they are ready to die for each other. So in the ancient world, non-Christians took note. They looked at this peculiar group of people and said, look at how they love each other. The watching world noticed. And friends, in a world that is increasingly polarized and bitter and ruthless, the church has a powerful opportunity to demonstrate a radical love for one another that is compelling and refreshing and attractive to a world that desperately needs the hope of the gospel. Now notice what what ends kind of this chapter. Simon Peter, our brother again, asked him, Lord, where are you going? Hey, okay, I hear about the love thing, but you just said you're leaving, so hold on, what's that about? Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Again, as we said earlier, Jesus is talking about his coming death. He's going away. Peter says, Wait a second, where are you going? Why can't I follow? I'm with you to the very end, Jesus. And Jesus says, "Mm, About that, Um, verse 38, Very soon, actually, you're going to disown me and deny that you even know me. And if you know the story of the Gospels, you know how things unfold, then you know that Jesus is right. And in just a few hours, Peter is going to be questioned about being a disciple of Jesus, and he's going to deny even knowing Jesus. And what's noteworthy in these verses is not that Peter is going to deny or disown Jesus. Um, The surprising part is that Peter is so oblivious to the fact that he would do that, he's so confident. I mean, even if everybody else disowns you, right? Not me. I'm with you to the end. I will lay down my life for you. And so he shows a great ignorance of his own weakness, the possibility, even likelihood of his coming failure. Soon the heat's going to get turned up on Jesus and the disciples. A mob's going to come and arrest Jesus. And here's D.A. Carson again, writing of Peter. Sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. Isn't that true? When we're safe and comfortable and well-fed, Jesus, I am in. This is great. I'm with you to the end. But then the heat gets turned up and our hearts are shown truly for what they are. And we'd be wise not to underestimate now our own capacity for denying Jesus as well. Will we remain true to Christ when the kitchen gets hot and the cultural pressure is turned up and we're insulted or 
ridiculed or labeled as closed-minded or backwards or narrow or when Christians are seen as dangerous or holding to simple biblical truths? It's a hard question. Well, it's an easy question for us to answer now, um, but it's often hard to live out as things unfold. And so the response then is in humility to cling to Christ, to be aware of our need, to in humility say, Lord Jesus, I need you. And really, I'm going to try and hold on to you, but really, I just need you to hold on to me. And friends, communion, as we close, is a chance, chance to do exactly that, to come in humility with open hands to the Lord, aware of our need. Lord Jesus, I need you. I needed you to rescue me on the cross, and I need you right now. And so we practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we invite you to participate and take the elements with us. I'll pray here in just a moment, and then we'll take these together. Communion is an opportunity to remember uh, the work of Christ for us, his broken body, his shed blood on the cross for our salvation. So would you pray with me, and then we'll remember the Lord. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we love you, and, and we thank you for, for dying for us. As I have loved you, you said, and so we remember this morning, how you loved us. Thank you for coming, for living the perfect life we could not live and dying the death that we deserved for us and our sin. We thank you that you rose again in power and victory and you will come again. So our hope is in you. So we take these elements, Lord Jesus, to remember you and worship you and declare once again this day our need for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. So this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.